Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 153 of the Podium and Panel podcast. This week we have three cases again, although one from the first district that we'll talk about uh, already came out uh, surprisingly fast. And so uh, sometimes Or maybe happens. not so surprising considering how the oral argument went. Well, well, true, but just, yeah, just the, the rapidness and it's not the second district. So, but uh, yeah, exactly. Yep. Our first case is from Illinois, uh, the Illinois Appellate First District. Cotton versus Kikaro. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate 5th District, Wilson versus Donde. And the third case is from the Illinois 1st District, State of Illinois X uh, Relation. What's REL stand for? Uh, it's, it's Relator. Relator. It's XREL Stephen B. Diamond PC. Yep. Versus Henry Poole and Company Limited. Let's turn to our first case. Special interrogatories, sole proximate cause, Prejudgment interest. Pat did not realize it was possible to wrap every major civil justice issue of the last half decade into one case. Sounds like a, a Civ Pro a final potentially, but that is what happened yesterday or last week. I apologize. In Cotton versus Kikaro, an oral argument before the Illinois Appellate Court First District. In this medical malpractice case involving the alleged failure to timely diagnose cancer, the defense claimed cumulative error by the trial judge and also challenge the constitutionality of the prejudgment interest statute. Pat, tell us about this case and the opinion that already came down. Yeah, we normally wouldn't do this, but this is of such a, a great importance to Illinois civil procedure, or sorry, Illinois civil justice. We, we have to talk about it, both the oral argument as well as the opinion. So there's a lot to say here, and I'm probably going to leave some things out that need to be said. I want to start, though, with the first half of the opinion, which is usually not the odd place to start, but here it is, because I don't want to bury the lead. I would com- The first half of the opinion is about, I don't know, three or four e- episodes of waiver by trial counsel in the, uh, at, at the tri- at the, during the trial. Did I get that right, Dan? Yes. They, they, they managed to waive or about every way you can on an issue that was central to the case. the I don't know what happened at trial, but I would commend this case to lawyers, plaintiffs and defense lawyers alike, because it doesn't matter. And but for the grace go I, because I have done this, forgotten to give a uh, offer of proof, and then caught myself and fixed the mistake the next day. Uh, middle of trial, woke up in the middle of the night going, oh, shoot. We didn't, we didn't give an offer of proof. And then we gave the offer, told the story before on the show and gave the offer of proof the next day. Yep. Uh, so it can be done. You can fix the mistake, but they didn't do that here. That's one thing they didn't do. They offered jury instructions that they then objected to on appeal that were the core of their case on sole proximate cause. This was a failure to diagnose cancer case where the doctor who was left was the original radiologist who missed 
the calcification of the tumor in this young woman. And the clinicians who also screwed up, the gynecologist and the primary care physician who also screwed up, they settled for $1.7 million. The ultimate judgment was from the jury was $6.5 million, reduced by the $1.7 plus the prejudgment interest, which we'll get to in a moment. And their argument was going to, they were trying to make a sole proximate cause argument, essentially pointing the finger at the doctors. They tried to do that several ways. The, the judge forbade them from doing that in various ways, but ultimately allowed in evidence. But then they didn't give an offer of proof on the sole proximate cause argument. They offered, this was at a time in the fall of 2021, when there was a real issue as to whether the sole proximate cause instruction 12.04 and the other its companion 12.05 were in or out of the IPIs. And I'm going to pat myself on the back for a moment because I know this for a fact. <laughs> because I spoke with the plaintiff's lawyer shortly after this happened. He used a column that I wrote on this topic as the history of how this had happened. I wrote a column in November of 2021, October, late October, early November. No, it was it was late late November of 2021 on what had happened. The jury instructions are on the website, and Supreme Court Rule 239 says use the ones there. And during the late summer and early fall of 2021, those instructions were being modified, and they were coming off and on of the website during that time. And so apparently there was this, this session during the jury instruction conference where they went back to Judge Desierto. He was the circuit court judge who tried the case. Judge Desierto's computer and huddled around his computer to see what was there. Because the judge is like, I got to follow what's on the on the Supreme Court's website. That's what I'm supposed to use. They're there right now. So I'm going to use them, even though it seems they've been withdrawn. Um, and they had been withdrawn. Just no one knew it yet. <laughs> and so <laughs> they went, are left with the, the 1501 instruction and the, the defendants that doesn't mention the word sole proximate cause. And as a consequence, they then argued the defendants did, well, you shouldn't have used 12.04 and 12.05 because those weren't the state of the law at the time. It's a very strange argument for the defendants to have to make, but that's the one they were left with making. <laughs> um, it, it, not the best argument, uh, no. but what they were left with. Um, they were th There is real problems with how the case was tried and issues were, were in terms of how they were prepared or uh, preserved for issue on appeal. Created a real problem, which made this a very bad vehicle for the real issue in this case, which is the, the prejudgment interest issue. So... Uh, the, the lawyer who argued this for the plaintiff, oh, there also was a special interrogatory issue, as Dan mentioned. Um, <laughs> they they offered a special interrogatory. They then, that got rejected. They then said, hey, we'll get you another one, but they never did. And so they couldn't preserve the record on that. Um, and then apparently in the opening brief, they argued the judge had to uh, give the instruction, even though the law had changed on that point. It, it, was, a, it was a bit of a mess. Um, so the lawyer who represented the appellants as uh, a former colleague of mine, a very good lawyer, uh, um, Scott Howley, had a very rough ride going into what there's the real issue in the case, which is the prejudgment interest. Right. Um, and so he, he, he had he's getting punched. But I mean, it was it was a very difficult argument um, and it was difficult because of what the record was that they had. And he's arguing cumulative error, which is a hard argument to make anyway. It's just it was just bad all the way around. Uh, I, I I will say that the plaintiffs did a very good job of picking this case to be the one that they had go up 
on prejudgment interest because it was such a favorable ground for the plaintiffs on all of these issues. You start off with some really bad appealable issues on the substance, and then you turn to this this uh, prejudgment interest issue. And the arguments there are very difficult. Um, only one judge who has addressed the issue, Judge Maris, in the Highland case, uh, had agreed had agreed with the defendants that the statute was unconstitutional. She found it unconstitutional for a variety of reasons. This panel um, rejected those uh, one after another. Um, the uh, what was interesting about the oral argument, though, Dan, is this: the trial lawyers. This is not uncommon. The trial lawyers did not handle the appeal. Okay. Yep. They, they brought in a very experienced uh, appellate lawyer, Michael Reagan, from Ottawa to argue it, to do those issues. And then, <laughs> I don't know, they, they, because Illinois doesn't allow amicus counsel to argue an oral argument, what they did is they had a second set of lawyers from Clifford's office and Bruce Pfaff, who have, they're on the brief, they, had, they wrote the issues on the prejudgment interest. And there was an amicus brief also written by uh, Nick Depustool from uh, from Benjamin and Shapiro, uh, wrote the amicus brief for ITLA on the case, but he didn't have to argue. Instead, what they did is they had the lawyer, uh, Ms. Loison, from Clifford's office, argue that half of their arguments. So it was a way to sneak in, and I'm, not, I'm not implying anything nefarious, just a way to get in, uh, right. get in uh, amicus counsel arguing on the, on the, uh, prejudgment interest issues. And so again, very well managed. Good job. Uh, t- taking full advantage of the rules. Uh, uh, not suggesting anything was untoward by anybody, just creative and good by that. So they argue, um, due process, uh, violation of the, uh, violation of the inviolate right to a jury trial in Illinois, they argue separation of powers. They argue three judgment rule. They argue retroactivity. The whole legion of arguments. Um, the the there are some openings here, though, um, because one yeah. thing the court said it, it made a big deal about this distinction between tort. You know why prejudgment interest in tort cases is is okay? Is well, we have it in contract cases, statutory cases. It's like, well, that's right. But those are different because the damages there are fixed. You know what the damages are in those contract cases for the most part. Um, that is money you were, you were deprived when the contract was breached. Uh, that's not the way it works in tort. That's not how right. tort damages are. I think right. New York, for example, has prejudgment interest, but it only accrues after liability is fixed. Um, so if you get partial summary judgment on liability, you can get prejudgment interest from then on. Um, so that's just, that's just not, they're just, it's fundamentally different. And I don't think that argument was pressed enough. The other thing, uh, that the other thing was, is there's an opening here for parties that defendants who were added later because the, the interest begins to run from the date of the filing of the action. And the only way it can be reduced is if a defendant makes an offer within the first 12 months and that offer is rejected. So if suppose, the ultimate judgment is a million, but the defendant made an offer for half a million within the first year, and that was rejected. The defend, the plaintiff can get at uh, prejudgment interest on the f- half a million above the half million that was offered in that circumstance. But a defendant who was added later on couldn't uh, do that because they weren't within the first year. 
The court rejected it on two bases. Number one, it said that isn't you. You don't have standing to argue that because you were a named defendant from the very beginning. And number two, even if they were, through some magic, we're going to argue that the action is filed when the defendant is added, not when the action is filed. But that's creative. That's good dicta. I'm sure that's what will happen. But uh, that's not what the case, That's not what the statute says. And I wrote that at the time when the statute passed in June of 2021. I wrote at the time that this was a problem because you have to rewrite the statute. It says when the action was filed, not when the action was filed against that defendant. If they had right. said against that defendant, they could have done that. Very easy words. Three words against that defendant. They didn't write that. They wrote the action filed. Crappy drafting as per the usual arrangement in Springfield. But maybe, the court maybe be prepared to uh, save them. Maybe intentional. <laughs> It'd be intentional. Who knows? Who knows? I, I mean, wouldn't be surprised. The best indication, the best indication of, the, of, the, of the intention of the legislature is the language of the, of the statute. And right. the statute couldn't be more clear. When they wrote, when the action is filed, right. not when defendants are added. Uh, also, doesn't seem to apply. Doesn't deal very well with third-party defendants because they can settle directly with plaintiffs. Another problem with the statute, but legions of problems with the statute. But because of the way it was written, which gets us to the third, the third three-reading rule. When you write things like this in this fashion, you miss things. You don't catch everything, and you you really have problems. And the courts, this court had no choice, as they say, we are not in a position to, to ignore the enrolled bill doctrine. Fine. I accept that. I think that's the right ruling. But the Supreme Court has got to take a look at this because the conduct, the way in which the Supreme Court, or strike that, the General Assembly conducts itself in passing legislation is frankly an embarrassment. Um, they, the, stat, the Constitution is very clear in terms of what they need to do, and it is consistently ignored. Uh, the court cites quite rightly to, that the Constitutional Convention of the, the, for the 1970 Convention, the 1970 Constitution, uh, you know, kind of contemplated the enrolled bill doctrine. But the idea that the legislature would police itself, let's just say the policeman is dead or asleep at the job. He's not policing. <laughs> uh, and we, we, you know, time and again, irrespective of party. This is not a Democrat problem or a Republican problem in the General Assembly. This is a General Assembly problem in Illinois. They refuse to follow the law. The law says three readings, and they won't do it. They need to do it. Um, and that fundamentally changes how the sausage gets made when everybody knows what it is, the sausage that's being made. Um, and, and that will change Springfield in a fundamental way if they actually have to follow the law. That would be really nice. Maybe the results will be the same but at least they'll have followed the procedure. Procedure matters, and eventually the Supreme Court's going to take this up. That wasn't the place, as the court quite rightly says, not the place for an intermediate court of review. They are bound by what the Supreme Court has said. The Supreme Court's been very clear on this point. The Supreme Court needs to be clear in the other direction on this point, um, that the, the three readings rule has got to be enforced. The enrolled bill doctrine has got to go. So I've said enough. I'll have more to say uh, in a blog post for my firm, as well as in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. This is obviously a very big issue in civil justice in Illinois, uh, not how I would have wanted this opinion to come out, but not surprised how it came out, especially having read the uh, or having listened to the oral argument. Dan, uh, your thoughts after my ramblings? No, I've uh, you know I'm shocked that this is going to be the subject of, of a blog and or your Chicago Daily Law Bulletin column. Yeah, you're winning, sir. Yeah, no, I uh, 
I, I think you covered it. I mean, I, you know, uh, uh, like you said, not surprising uh, the way the statute's written. I think that the, the, the only Supreme Court's going to have to cover this. And we've covered it, you know, many times in this podcast, the way sausage is made in Springfield or the way it's not made. It's really, it's a, it's not like any other sausage making process, probably because of the substitute bills and the shell bills and the, the th- third reading could be a reading of something that has to do with uh, cosmetic uh, salon licensing. And at the end of the day, it's it's bad faith punitive damages or it's an insurance code major change. Uh, that's the way that Springfield works. Uh, they have this constitutional requirement that they go through these uh, steps, one subject matter, uh, three readings, all this stuff that's uh, imposed upon them. And, and to your point, Pat, I think at some point, the Illinois Supreme Court is going to have to actually put their foot down and say, this is what it says. And every time we see a piece of legislation that does not follow this procedure, right, it doesn't go through this process, uh, we're going to uh, void that legislation. I mean, that's, I I don't know how else you can get Springfield, they've been doing this for years, to decades, decades. Yeah. So I don't know how you get them to, to uh, change their practices unless they're given a very harsh warning and there's some consequences. Yeah. And, and maybe the court says we're only going to enforce it going forward because the number of bills, the number of statutes that would be that would be undone by this would be would shock the conscience. It would. You know, it may only be a going forward or a perspective type situation because of the chaos that right. would be created. But it's got to get fixed somehow. Um, I would like it obviously to be retroactive because most of the crap that comes out of Springfield is just that. But, you know, something's better than nothing. Right. Um, I, you know, one other constitutional challenge I forgot to mention was special legislation, whether this is only for certain kinds of people. And the court said, you know, this doesn't implicate a fundamental right. It's only subject to rational basis, not strict scrutiny. So, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's close enough. Rational basis, which is just essentially we'll just find some reason to approve what the government did, even if what the government did is not exactly not strictly within what it should be doing. Uh, that's always the, I, it's always love the rational basis test. It's how can we approve what the government did today? Um, never, uh, never a fan of that particular test, but that's the test that was employed in the ra- in the reasoning for it. So uh, should have mentioned that at the beginning. So with that, we'll take our, our first break and come back with Wilson versus Donde. And maybe you'll hear less of me next, next segment. <laughs> Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 153. Is the cause of death on a death certificate admissible in Illinois simply because it is a public record completed by a duly elected public official? Or must a foundation be laid that the coroner has medical training that would allow them to issue such an opinion? Can the defendant's expert testify as to the possibilities of the cause of death of the plaintiff decedent? Or must the expert offer an opinion as to a reasonable degree of certainty as to a particular cause of death? Those are among the questions to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides Wilson versus Donde argued the last week. 
The plaintiff in this medical malpractice case contended that the defendant doctor failed to advise the decedent that he should limit or restrict his activity after an occlusion of the, a, a complete occlusion of the yep. left anterior descending artery, I, a, a.k.a. the Widowmaker. Uh, the, this is what the, 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 the claim is, that they had a Widowmaker heart attack. Why they don't know what caused this guy's death, I don't know, but they don't. The decedent died a spontaneous death prior to surgery being able to be performed, but for some reason the body was not examined. The death certificate listed heart attack as the cause, but also listed hypertension as a secondary cause, which was not a condition suffered by the deceased. The plaintiff attempted to offer the death certificate on, on the cause of death, arguing that it is a business record under Supreme Court Rule 236 and admissible under 725 ILCS 5-115-5.1. That's a mouthful. The court allowed the death certificate to be admitted, but did not publish to the jury and redacted the cause of death from the certificate. Neither side called the coroner to testify. The defense argued that in the absence of showing that the coroner had medical training, which they are not required to have under Illinois law, oftentimes they're like an undertaker or something, uh, as it is an elected position, the cause of death is not permitted to be admitted. The defense relied on 55 ILCS 5 slash 3 3031 for the proposition that a coroner's inquest can be admitted, but the death certificate is not a coroner's inquest. My reading of the statute relied on the plaintiff does not require admissibility because the cause of death on the death certificate does not necessarily show the conclusion contained relates to the coroner or other person having, quote, performed medical examinations upon deceased persons or autopsies, end quote. Enough of me, Dan. Tell us about this oral argument. Thanks, Pat. And a couple of things. You, you mentioned the statute that uh, uh, plaintiffs relied upon here and uh, a lot of talk uh, uh, to your uh, introduction about uh, qualifications of medical examiners and coroners in, in Illinois. 115-5.1 talks about, it says in any civil or criminal action, the records, and that's the kind of the debate here, of the coroner's medical or laboratory examiner summarizing and detailing the performance of his or her official duties. And here again, Pat, you talk about in performing medical examinations upon deceased persons or autopsies or both and kept in the ordinary course of business of the coroner's office duly certified, blah, blah, blah. These reports specifically including, but not limited to the pathologist protocol, autopsy reports and toxicological reports shall be public documents and therefore may be admissible as prima facie evidence of the facts, findings, opinions, diagnoses, and conditions stated therein. And that's kind of the language again, like you said, there was no medical exam here. So uh, the word is, death is, certificate does not appear in the statute. Right. It's not there. Right. It's not there. And so that was the debate. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that that we talked about, Pat, and, and I think uh, uh, should be noted is for, for our listeners, if they listen to this uh, appellate argument, uh, the appellee's uh, uh, approach to the bench was, was very dismissive, uh, kind of poo-pooed their uh, theories or their questions or their uh, lines of questioning. Uh, dismissive, said at one point, uh, let me continue or something like that to one of the uh, uh, justices' questions. Uh, the, um, uh, like you mentioned, uh, I mean, what, what, what's at heart here is, is, as you noted, the death certificate states that this guy had hypertension and his medical record, according to this argument and from what I, what I understand from the record, 
there's no evidence that he was ever diagnosed with hypertension or or high blood pressure and so uh you know it, it's not uh it's it, just because you have a an occlusion it's not necessarily that that your blood pressure is high or that you have hypertension so um you know they, they and what's really at stake in this case is is as you mentioned whether or not uh, any of his his uh, primary physician or any of the uh, surgeons or anybody else uh, advised him that he should not engage in any kind of activity. Uh, the one thing that that was missing, Pat, and maybe you caught it, but I did not from the record, is is you said he was, died a spontaneous death. So uh, one of the questions I had as I was listening to the oral argument is whether or not there's even uh, something that he did. You know, we, we talked about uh, uh, way back on the on the podcast the young lady who uh, had uh, concussions and went on the roller coasters and did all kinds of other crazy stuff and then had some serious health issues. I don't remember what her fate was, but in this case, well, she had a TBI. I, I she, she, yeah. had, she, had, she had a TBI, and, and it, yeah. it was only crazy her activities in view of her having had a series of concussions from right. cheerleading and car accidents and so forth. Right, and. Uh, in this case, again, I, I didn't hear anything that, that talked about what exactly, you know, that he did. And so, uh, again, I, I think this case really comes down to the fact that this medical examiner or coroner, who's not, doesn't have to be medically trained in, in the state. Um, and, and, you know, when I've, I've, I'm not an expert on this, but I've, when I've read some of these, uh, situations there was a guy down in louisiana i think or something one of these experts that was a coroner and went in all these cases about uh, causes of death and stuff and then was debunked you know there's some of this stuff um down there they didn't have to be uh medically licenses either and part of the reason for that was back in the back in you know old days you know where there weren't really a lot of hospitals around there weren't a lot of uh, medical providers uh, you kind of watch the old uh, westerns and stuff, where the doctor comes, or the medical person, or midwives. Um, that may be part of the the genesis of why uh, these people don't have to have any kind of certification, even though it's called a medical examiner, which is kind of bizarre and, and coroner. Well, in this case, it's coroner. Th- this case, it's coroner. Uh, but you you would think that they would have some kind of uh, medical training to be able to advise. Well, they're also um, supposed to investigate deaths that are unexpected. Right. You know. Right. And, and this was, and I, I mean. I, I'm trying to figure out how did they, how was this death not, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why there wasn't an autopsy done. Perhaps the family forbade it. Yeah. I don't know if you can. I don't know how that works. Perhaps yeah. they, you know, perhaps he was cremated. You know, I, I don't know. You would think though that, that again, if, if, if that was the decision of the family, uh, that really puts a, a, a challenge on them if they're uh, claiming medical malpractice or, you know, negligence, some negligence, right? You know, yeah. because now you've, you, you don't have, you don't have the substantive evidence to actually, uh, help, help your case. Um, so, uh, very interesting. Like I said, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the appellee in this case, the, the advocate at one point, he said, uh, to, to one question, uh, about judicial notice and the Supreme court, and a line of questioning by one of the justices that he disagreed with the characterizations. Uh, the uh, uh, said said that he'd handled it well in the brief. Um, uh, they had an expert, the defendants in this case, as the cause of death. Again, they, they really didn't go into the details in this case. 
Um, so it's an interesting case of, of again, this, the statute, like you said, the statute that I read at the beginning, it doesn't talk about death certificate. It talks about a medical exam in connection with a medical exam. And so this court's going to have to figure out whether or not uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the cause of death that's listed on the certificate is in fact a record that was conducted in, in the scope of the coroner's duties, official duties, whatever that means, and whether it's admissible. It's a it very to your point about the about the uh, what evidence the plaintiff or the defense put forward is their expert wasn't willing to say he because he said he couldn't figure out what the, that was his whole point is it could have been a stroke because the guy he claimed he had a guy had a history of stroke it could have been you know this that or the other and he offered possibilities because his whole point of his testimony was we can't tell what caused this death um, and because they can't tell what causes death they don't know if. The failure to warn about don't undergo these activities. I don't know if he, you know, maybe the plaintiff went out and decided to run a marathon. I mean, hopefully, you know, I doubt that, but you get my point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, that'll be interesting to see what's required. If that's a, if that's a good enough testimony to say, uh, for an expert say, well, this could have happened. This could have happened. I can't say to a reasonable degree what happened, but that's the whole point of the testimony. So, right. Very unique situation. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back. Uh, with use tax, that'll be, we don't talk about tax very much, but this case isn't really about that. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 153 of the Podium and Panel podcast. What duty does a foreign clothier that comes to Illinois to sell its goods have to inform itself of its use tax obligations? Does a customer of that entity have a duty such that he is, quote, hopelessly conflicted, end quote, in bringing a key Tom action under the Illinois False Claims Act? Those are the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides State of Illinois, X Rel, Stephen B. Diamond, PC versus Henry Poole and Company Limited. The defendant came to Illinois 14 hours a year to provide fittings for its customers, one of whom was the plaintiff. The plaintiff filed the action against the defendant, and the defendant moved for summary judgment, which was originally denied, but on motion to reconsider was granted by the trial court. On appeal, the parties dispute what level of knowledge is required for there to be liability. Pat, tell us about the arguments in this interesting case. It is very interesting, and and Justice Taylor really went at counsel for the appellant on this point that Dan mentioned, is both the defendant pool which is based out of london and and prepares custom clothing for people as well as the customer who is the putative uh, relator who's the relator in this case bringing the action for not paying use tax are apparently both liable for paying the use tax (laughs) and justice taylor's like how can you claim the other guy didn't pay the use tax when you have the very same obligation how can why is it your knowledge, because you're an Illinois resident, not to know you need to pay the use tax? 
Um, you know, all pool's supposed to do is collect it. You're the right. one supposed to pay it. Um, because people think of corporations paying tax. Corporations don't pay tax. Even in, even corporate income tax, they don't pay tax. They collect tax. Then they pass it on. They, whether it's sales tax or income tax or whatever you want, they don't pay tax. They collect money and then they pay it back to the government. They don't pay tax. Um, they, you, you, especially use tax, uh, or which is a form of sales tax. And so it, what, what they need, do they need to hire accountants and lawyers? They, there was a lot of discussion of this MyPillow case, which was also a case I think brought by the same group of relators or same firm of relators. And they, in that case, the court held that they did have a duty because they did had a sufficient amount of business. They came to Illinois like 40 times a year and they sent mailers and they were really availing themselves quite consistently of the right to do business in Illinois. Whereas this company pool goes around the world, you know, all major cities, they go to like 10 cities in the United States and cities in Europe and Africa and Asia and, and South America, presumably as well, you know, selling in Australia, perhaps selling their, 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 their tailor-made clothes. Um, they're on, uh, as, as justice Taylor said, uh, they're on, uh, was it on Seville row or whatever it is, the very fancy, uh, very yep. fancy street in, 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 in the city, in, in London, you know, how do you guys not know you go into a market, you're trying to really, one of the other justices, I'm not sure which one it was really pressed. It's like, you guys are doing this for profit, right? Well, we're doing this as a customer. You're doing this for profit, aren't you? It's like finally counsel for the appellee admitted. Yeah, we're doing this for profit. Yeah, we're going concerned. That's our job. Okay. So don't you have an obligation to find out what your tax obligations are? Can you just bury your head in the sand? Um, and the question is what level of knowledge is needed uh, in order to be liable under the False Claims Act? Uh, very, very interesting issues raised. Uh, we, it's, it's very trying to determine mens re in the in the civil context. It's very, it's always kind of wishy washy. Uh, yeah. It's much better. I think it's like the senses I have is that it's much better defined in the criminal context, but in the civil context, it's really kind of wishy washy. Gross negligence, recklessness, intentional. You know, and that gets you into what could be a punitive damages and so forth. But this kind of merges into that whole that whole milieu. Um, it's it's all kind of a mess in civil in the civil courts, and and I'm not sure how this is going to come out. But an interesting case, nonetheless. Do you yep. have anything to add on this case? Nope, I, th- I think you covered it, Pat. And yeah, an interesting case. And uh, you know, one thing about like I said for use tax, the back in the day when. I think I still do it on my income taxes for Illinois, but, uh, you know, you, if you do a lot of internet stuff and other things, you're supposed to, like you said, the individual files, the use tax, right? You, you, uh, they, they may collect it, these people, but they're, when the company's collected, they're not collecting it for themselves. Like I said, they're collecting it, putting it into a they tax account. They should have got account. it from you. Right. And then. And if they don't you, pay it, you need to. Right. So interesting issues. So uh, no BI for COVID this week. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, yeah. Predictions sure to go wrong this week. Three and zero this week, though, with some help from the black box. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, first, we got correct. Uh, Parker versus Symphony Evanston. We've heard a litany of these cases regarding the enforceability of a, an arbitration clause in a um, 
nursing home agreement, or is it part of the nursing home agreement? In this case, the court said that since the arbitration agreement was signed by the healthcare power of attorney, not a general power of attorney, that it, the agreement was not enforceable because it wasn't necessary for the provision of health care and therefore not within the purview or not within the scope of the um, uh, of the power of the health care power of attorney. Uh, right. The Illinois Supreme Court has a similar issue before us. we talked about Clanton. Uh, it, it, the primary issue there is the uh, is the termination upon death clause in the agreement. Uh, and the secondary issue is the issue that was addressed here in Parker. So we may get some clarity from the Supreme Court. We'll find out. Uh, Dan, anything to add on that case? Nope. Nope. That's it. All right. So why don't you tell us about Door Properties versus Malawi, an opinion that started with the the rule of thumb is when you're when when you're when you're at the bottom of a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. Um, yeah. That's how the opinion yeah. began. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I love it, and th- this is a case we covered last Sunday. By the way, we discussed and, we discussed the Parker case on episode one forty eight. This case, as yep. Dan said, we discussed last Sunday on episode one fifty two. Sorry, go ahead. Right, uh, as you mentioned, they gave him the admonition. You know, the first rule of holes is to stop digging, <laughs> and it comes from a Seventh Circuit case, two thousand fourteen. You can't make this up. You know, um, they said no, 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 no. Owie uh, would be wise to heed that advice now. When we last saw him, he was in contempt of court. It sounds like a novel, and David Ellis wrote this opinion. So, like one of his uh, great uh, fiction writers. It's, it's very well. The opinion is very yeah. well written. Yeah. And Justice yeah. Ellis, he can really write. Yeah. Really write. So, so he says, uh, quote, when we last saw him, he was in contempt of court and racking up contempt fines by the day. His debts already sizable keep growing ever larger. Yet he continues to flout the commands of the courts of this state, end quote. And then they move on and they vacate the court's order and the writ of body attachment because, as we talked about, Pat, the uh, order itself was unclear whether uh, anything but the payment of the fine would get him out of jail. The uh, Alice wrote that, that the uh, court was sympathetic to the trial court, uh, which inherited this difficult situation and grew impatient with Nalawi. Uh, they uh, say that he, they, the court erred in locking him up on the condition that they pay the fine, but they give him another admonition, quote, but now Nalawi should understand clearly that under the proper procedure, he could soon face jail again if he continues to refuse to answer the discovery request that prompted the contempt finding years ago, end quote. So again, as we talked about on this, with this case, uh, it's been going on for eight years. This is a citation to discover assets. And no, so- no, the case has been going on since 2010. Yeah, the citations, the, the citations, citations. The supplemental proceedings have been going on for eight years, which is incredible. And uh, so, we'll, we'll, uh, as as we talked about when we covered this case last Sunday, uh, this case will probably be in a couple months back on here again in the next iteration of whether he produced his records and whether uh, he's going to jail or not again, or he's in jail. We'll see what happens. Uh, stay tuned. So one thing I add to this is the procedure because I didn't quite we didn't quite understand how it came to be that yeah. he was arrested and then he when we checked I checked the Cook County website to see if he was an inmate and he was I was like well, how did this happen so what happened is is the the judgment was uh, the order was entered back in December they pick him up on a traffic stop in February he spends about five days in jail before he files an emergency appeal with the appellate court the appellate court says let him go while we do this appeal. 
We'll figure out if he belongs in jail or not. And you can get him again if you have to. Uh, and so they let him out. So this was done on an emergency petition from, and they briefed it, you know, relatively speaking, quickly, heard it, and then ruled very quick, very shortly thereafter. So that's an interesting procedural way, you know, because obviously if someone, you know, is in jail, you've got to, and, and may, on a contempt, maybe you need, maybe he belongs in jail, maybe he doesn't. Uh, they needed to figure that out quickly, and they did, relatively speaking. Um, but they let him out during the pendency because otherwise you're, you're punishing him when he may not belong there. Uh, so they needed to, they let him out. That's what happened there procedurally. Um, so we got that one right. The next one we got right was, well, yeah, the, 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 it's, the, that's the Royal we, uh, and it's the, and it's, it's the, you know, I've told this story before, but I, I, I do love it. My contracts professor said, uh, the, the, uh, whenever you see the word constructive, get ready for something that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> this is right. Dan constructively gets a win here. Uh, the black box wins. We'll, so get we'll ready take for something that didn't happen. Yep, you take the win. Uh, you know, even though I'm behind, I, the, the black box is charitable. I, I run it. And I, you know, it's very charitable. Uh, this was this was uh, episode 145 when Steve Shulwolf, our friend, uh, former former Chicagoan, now Austonian. I, 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 it, what's the denominator for yeah. people from Austin? The Austonian, you think? Austinian? I think so. Yeah, person from Austinian. Texas. Yeah, Austinian something. So. Anyway, our, our, our friend uh, Steve Shulwolf uh, came on the show. Uh, to discuss because this was an environmental insurance coverage case, which was right up his alley. Uh, this was LM Insurance versus City of Sycamore. And the court held that not only agreeing with the trial court that this was not an that this was an occurrence, which I find bizarre, but they pointed to the Crestwood case that said where the, the people had intentionally put the water into the stream or in, into the into the put the contaminated water into the water supply. That wasn't that constituted an occurrence. Surely this did, okay? Because when they didn't maintain the water mains, that then allowed them to break down because of acidic soils, allowing uh, iron and lead to leach in, and then the bacteria to grow because the chlorine wasn't working. The court said that's all triggered a that potentially triggered a duty to defend. So it reversed and it didn't enter judgment in favor of the defendants, in favor yeah in favor of the of the village what our city. It said. Go have some more proceedings. I don't know what those proceedings are going to look like, but they didn't enter judgment um, for them. They just reversed the judgment that had been entered in favor of the insurance company. Obviously, good news if you're the city, bad news if you're the insurance company, but they didn't end the case from what I read. Is that how you read it, Dan? That, that's how I read it, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the proceedings are going to look like, but there we are. Um, all right, so we need to do our predictions for this week. Um uh, we're not going to take, even though I think we know what we would have said, we would have said it was affirmed. Yeah. I don't think the black box can be stretched that far to give us cotton. I don't think I think we'd lose the credibility of the black box. You mean we whatever, have it already? Well, whatever, whatever credibility we do have, if we have any. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely be gone. All right, so Wilson versus Dondi. I think this gets affirmed. Justice so. Kate's plainly isn't going to affirm it, but I, I think there'll be a I think there'll be a split. What do you think? I, I think so too. I think yeah. it'll be affirmed. All right, and then uh, Diamond uh, State of Illinois XRL Diamond versus Henry Pool and Company. I think that's getting affirmed too. I agree. I think they're going to draw this distinction with the uh, the My Pillow case. Yeah. Um, so two affirmances today. We could do three, but we're not that greedy. 
Uh, which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan, which you which you dug out. Tell us about the – we're back to Corey's of the week. Thank you to our friend Corey Webster. Uh, the, tell us about the Corey of the week. Sure. And the, the, this uh, – yeah, thanks to Corey for, for providing us some. We've had rules and we will continue to have rules. Uh, but uh, Corey does post a lot of interesting stuff. And this had to do with the way of oh, approaching – scandalous shit going on out there in the Ninth Circuit. Oh, my God. Yeah. So <laughs> um, he uh, – uh, his post last week had to do with binding precedent uh, that where it squarely rejects your position. Uh, and, and he raised the question, is it frivolous to press the argument? Uh, he said that it's not necessarily frivolous, but proceed with caution. He, and he gave three things. Uh, do not take the position unless you have a good faith argument for overturning the precedent. Gut check your assessment of this question with a trusted colleague. Second, do not ignore the precedent against you. Doing so is unethical. It won't end well for you or your client. We've talked about that, Pat, where you, you know, we have duties to the court when things are wrong. And third, do not ask a court to defy or overturn precedent if that court has no power to do so. This may mean filing a motion, knowing that you will lose, just to preserve the issue for an appeal. And he uh, talked about a case that was in the Ninth Circuit, uh, the defendants in a putative class action in federal court. They wanted to compel arbitration in the face of Ninth Circuit precedent for closing the argument. Uh, the uh, motion that he attached uh, previews why the precedent is wrong without suggesting that the trial court defy the precedent. Uh, they, as he said, the motion was denied, defendants appealed. And then in the opening brief, uh, he says they should take the same approach. Uh, the three judge panel cannot overrule precedent. But again, it's this idea We've talked about this as well, Pat, of, of making your case and, and your record. Um, and one of the things that I should say about Corey that he often talks about, he oftentimes is embedded in the trial court uh, as an appellate lawyer. So, some teams do that. Some firms do that. And the reason we, for we it is- We certainly do. We have uh, yeah. we have an appellate department and, and we want we want to be, embed, even if it's whether our firm or, you know, monitoring somebody else is having embedded trial camp, embedded appellate right. counsel is really key. Yeah. It is. It is because again, there's a lot of rules. We talk about a lot of rules in this show, Pat, and and uh, you know, if, if you miss it and don't get it right or don't preserve the record adequately, as we've talked about on this show, uh, you may be facing a, a malpractice claim. But more importantly, justice for your client is going to be very difficult because you haven't, uh, you can't go back and say, well, uh, we did this, we argued this, right? We preserved it so that we can now appeal it. So. An interesting Corey of the week, and we may have one or two coming up in future weeks uh, because Corey's always got interesting things with California and the Ninth Circuit. Well, we actually had a, he had a follow-up to this later he in did. the week, so we go through this one. This actually deals with a case that we should have should have been on the uh, should have done this week. It's a Supreme Court case, the Jack Daniels case. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, we don't have time today, uh, but I'll just read the post because it's brilliant. Yeah, a case yeah. decided by the Supreme Court today. So this was just a couple days ago. Offered this was Thursday offers another example of what to do when binding precedent, precedent squarely rejects your position. A novelty company designed a dog toy to look like a Jack Daniels whiskey bottle. Jack Daniels claimed trademark infringement lost in the district court. In one sense, it was a foregone conclusion. The district court was stuck with the circuit precedent and a panel decision in, the earlier, in, in an earlier appeal in that very case. When Jack Daniels appealed to the Ninth Circuit, it faced a strategic decision. The three-judge panel would be stuck with the same precedent and the law of the case. Shortly after appealing, Jack Daniels moved for summary affirmance. That's right. It asked to <laughs> ask the court to grant it a quick loss so it could seek en banc or Supreme Court review. 
without wasting everyone's time on a, on a panel decision. A summary affirmance granted, no brief, no merits brief needed. Jack Daniel's legal team didn't spend resources barking up the wrong tree, and in the end, it persuaded the audience that mattered. The Supreme Court today sided with Jack Daniels in a unanimous decision. And, and if you'll recall, we'll talk about this more next week. This is this was Lisa Black. This it was. You know, she, I, I will say that is a that is a very courageous, you know, from the decision, you know, in terms of lawyers to take that kind of a risk. Hey. We'll just get. We'll just keep going. We're going to lose to you people. You people have to follow your decision. We're going to keep going. It's like okay. I mean, I. I it's uh, so. This is one way to deal with that situation is get yourself because you're you're gambling on number one them either taking it on bank, which is rare, or the or the Supreme Court taking a, a, a granted petition for writ of certiorari. Good luck, uh, and obviously panned off, panned out rather. They uh, they won nine nothing. Um, so anyway. Yeah. You either have to find a way to distinguish the precedent that is binding or say that it can confl- I have a case right now, a situ- several situations right now, where the argument I'm making is that the first district didn't follow the Illinois Supreme Court. And my argument to the circuit court judges is, is you're right, the first district, you have to follow the first district. First district conflicts with the, fir- with the Supreme Court. You can't reconcile those two decisions. Your job is to follow what the Illinois Supreme Court says. Some have agreed, some haven't, but my argument isn't to ignore the first district uh, or, uh, opinion. My argument is to say you have to follow the Supreme Court. Yep. So there we are. Anything else on that, Dan? Nope. We, and right. uh, we, we may have, in addition to the Jack Daniels case, we may have some other cases as the Supreme Court wraps up in the next few weeks before the 4th of July, its uh, term. There's a couple of cases I think we covered that haven't been decided yet. So, yeah, we, we didn't do as many Supreme Court cases if we, as we have in the past, but uh, th- there may be some 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 forthcoming. So we'll see. Um, yep. So with that, we'll take our we'll take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.